what is the difference between an overview study and a more typical Bible study? In your own words. Yeah, not just studying the scripture itself, but, but the history, the context, the, the author. Um, yes, uh, that's, a, that's a good distinction. What else? Difference between an overview Bible study and a more typical Bible study. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's... Trying to capture the main themes and the main points without digging down into the, the weeds and the dirt and cross-referencing and talking more specifically about the main points. So that it's different in that sense. What, what other sense is it different? There's a lob. I mean, I, I really thought someone was going to be, the other way is more fun and this way is boring. Or something, you know, something. You, I mean, that was a lob. You had a shot to, to take a jab. No one did. Thank you. I appreciate that. Any other distinctions? Anything y'all have noticed in four weeks of a New Testament overview study? How was Matthew's gospel unique? Matthew was the first one. very good, Greg. Greg's a very educated individual, and he, he's, well, that's good, yeah, that was, it was written by Matthew, as opposed to Mark, Luke, or John. Yes, it was the most Jewish of the Gospels. Why? Because he was a Jew, and what did he do for work? He was a tax collector, that's right. And what was his special focus on throughout what made it more Jewish? When we say it was more Jewish, what does that mean? The details were more Jewish, yes. How were the details more Jewish? Yeah, he referenced the Old Testament a lot, prophecy a lot. What else did he have a tendency to focus on? The feasts, yeah. The traditions. traditions. Whose response did he focus on a lot? The Jews, yes. There's like three people that were going, Jews. Yes, the Jews. Yeah, he he had a special focus on how the Jews particularly responded to Jesus' teaching. And that was unique to uh, the gospel according to Matthew, is that um, as a Jew, he had a perspective on that, and he recorded it. And so um, there was something that made it distinct. How about Mark? How was Mark's gospel unique? Yes, yes, yes. Mark, Mark is very detailed in some areas, and what, what is he more uh, focused on than, than the other gospels? What is Mark more focused on than the other gospels? The action, yeah, yeah. Mark's a good one to share uh, with uh, someone who's exploring faith or new to the faith as, as a guy who 
Um, it's all action-oriented. It's far less theological, although it's not void of theology, obviously, as a gospel, but it's, it's um, far less theological and far more action-oriented. Why was that? Who was he buddies with? That's right. How did he meet Peter? Yeah, <laughs> his diaper off, his loin diaper. Yes. Yeah. How, how did he meet him? Where did he meet him? At his mama's house. Yes, at his mama's house. In uh, in the book of Acts, it says that Peter, uh, when he got out of jail, remember he he was miraculously uh, he miraculously escaped via the help of the angels from jail. And then he went to uh, Mark's mama's house, and that's where they met. And you can imagine, now that you see Mark's demeanor, and we know Peter's demeanor, that they were probably two guys that just absolutely hit it off, right? And so much of what Mark shared was firsthand accounts from Peter. And uh, we can see that um, in those details. So um, in Matthew, we consider Jesus as the son of David. In Mark, we consider Jesus as the son of man. And then Luke, we're going to be considering mostly next week, but we'll do some, some preliminary work this week on Jesus as the son of Adam. So if you're taking notes, those are important things to write down. Matthew, Jesus the son of David. Mark, Jesus the son of man. And then Luke, Jesus is the son of Adam. Dever has a note that more than the other gospel writers, Luke wrote his gospel based on his own historical investigations. This is where it gets kind of neat to compare each of these guys and how God chose to, to bring this story together. That Luke wrote his gospel based on his own historical investigations far more than the others. So Mark wasn't a historical investigator. He, he was, he was uh, close to Peter, and they traveled together, and, they, and he listened to those stories, but he didn't do it as a, as a professional. He did it more as, as a layperson who was, who was um, interested and who was charged with a lot of the same, um, same uh, responsibilities. So look at Luke chapter 1, verse 1. It says in the opening, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. What might be some natural questions that we would ask of those opening four verses? Observations and questions. Who's Theophilus? That's the big one, right? This whole letter is a letter written to Theophilus. What other questions and, and observations might we have? Yeah, who are the many who have written? It would appear that there are people who wrote about gospel truths beyond Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What else? What are some other good questions? Helping their 
Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like a, yeah, like a preview. That's a great way to say it. Maybe Theophilus. Yeah. Yep. Any other observations on those first four verses or questions that we could ask of him that would come kind of naturally? Yeah, who taught Theophilus those things? Because he's affirming that, that he could have certainty concerning the things that he has already been taught. Anything else? Are there any English nerds in here? Oh, I know of one. I don't want to call them out, though. Any English nerds in here? <laughs> yeah. That's an impressive sentence, right? I mean, that's, that's that. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me. Also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. That's a good sentence. It's real good. Can we enjoy that together? Can you just affirm with the nodding of your head that that's a good sentence? All right, fantastic. So the first, I I do, I want to take note of the level of writing in the opening sentence because it tells us something about Luke. He was detailed. He was educated. He was smart. He was a good writer. Um, The ESV Study Bible says that this opening sentence ranks among the finest Greek writing of the first century and demonstrates Luke's skill and credentials as a writer. So, just the nature of what he wrote and how he wrote it is notable. Because if, if this is someone giving a detailed account as a skilled historian, um, trying to, to sort of a, an investigator, it wouldn't be awesome if he was like, Theophilus, heard you heard some stuff, hoping to look at that stuff and let you know what stuff I think. Right? That wouldn't have been as impressive. But the way he presents it is beautiful and cohesive and clear, and it gets your attention. The second thing, the obvious question, was the first question. Who's Theophilus? Theophilus is seen in only one other spot in Scripture. Does anyone know where that is? Acts. Yeah, turn to Acts chapter 1. So this whole thing, the book of Luke, the gospel according to Luke, is a letter being written to Theophilus. And Acts chapter 1 says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Those are the only two mentionings of Theophilus. Now, there are debates about who wrote the book of Acts. There are people who have very different um, theories, theories, for our purposes, we're going to say Luke wrote the book of Acts. And I don't think it's a stretch, okay? Because it says uh, an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. In the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began. Like, it's pretty clear to me uh, and others, 
who are smarter than me. It's always good to quote people who are smarter than you so that if you're wrong, it's really them who were wrong in the first place and you're just a byproduct of their foolishness. However, many smart people believe that Luke wrote the book of Acts. Um, in fact, I think your ESV study Bible actually just has him as the author. So he wrote these things and he wrote both of them to Theophilus. Um, many believe that Theophilus was a wealthy aristocrat who saw Luke's investigation as important and legitimate enough to fund it. Because this um, most excellent Theophilus, you don't say most excellent to your buddy. You don't say most excellent to an acquaintance. You don't say most excellent to anyone who doesn't deserve that title most excellent for someone who is definitely in the upper class. And so... Um, many think that um, this was a wealthy person who said, you know what, Luke, I believe in what you're doing. I've looked at what you've said, and I'm, I'm going to fund it. And, and I, wanna, I want you to write me these letters um, showing me what you have found. I was watching a deal on Discovery Channel or something about this guy who's sort of obsessed with this particular shipwreck um, because it has a lot of money. Uh, there's a lot of gold uh, in that shipwreck. And this guy, have, for the last like 20-something years, has been going through and doing all of this research, looking and investigating and getting details and facts. And he's put all this stuff together. And now this other, much wealthier guy who remains unknown has said, you know what? Go find it. I'm going to fund it. I want you to show me what you find. And so in the same manner, I think Theophilus is one who's probably funding what uh, Luke is doing here and says that's worth it, that's worthwhile Go do your investigation and, and write to me and let me know what you find. As well, for the background of Luke, we need to turn to... You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Colossians 4.14. Because Colossians 4.14... So we know that Luke wants to investigate. We know that Luke has investigated. We know that Theophilus has some interest in the investigation. So what about you know, how that took place? And in Colossians 4.14, we see, if you start in uh, it's these final greetings at the end, and uh, this is Paul, and, and he says in 13, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. It's interesting. It sounds a lot like Romans 1 where he's talking about his desire to go to Rome. It's the same kind of lingo, same flavor. And then in 14 he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So we see there, there and also in 2 Timothy 4.11, if you want to go read that on your own time. They all indicate that Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. So my question is, given all that we just heard, how would this affect Luke's ability to investigate? Access. To, to what? Other eyewitnesses? Absolutely. What else? Paul, that's a big one. What else? 
It's likely that Luke would have been introduced to the others. He would have talked to eyewitnesses. He would have, in fact, read other accounts. It's, it's clear that other accounts have already been mentioned. He would have compared stories, all the while compiling and investigating data. So he would have had a pretty comprehensive approach to where he could go in. It's not just, oh, I heard a story from a guy and here's what I heard. It's, man, I, I lived among them. I heard them. He saw the effect of the gospel on their lives after Christ had ascended. And so pretty remarkable um, insight that this investigative um, man uh, would have had. And I just, for a moment, before we move any further, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scriptures breathed out by God. And it's so cool. I, I was thinking about it this afternoon. It's so cool as we look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We haven't even gotten to John yet. Scripture is breathed out by God. I think growing up, my view of Matthew, Mark, and Luke was sort of like, they were all probably buddies, right? <laughs> they all were probably close, and you know, they'd share their stories, and Matthew's like, well, I'm going to write about this, and Luke's like, well, I'm going to take this because I like that story. I just had like a weird view of it growing up. Um, and then as I got older, my view wasn't really rounded out a whole lot by historical data uh, as far as the background of these guys. And, and I think probably for the majority of even my adult life, I had a view of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as you know, probably, probably like kind of like a you know, disciples, or not, not apostles, because they didn't get the charge firsthand, but they were probably like, you know, disciples and happened to be writers. And, and I never really dug into it. But in these last five weeks, four weeks, and then today, when you look at how God breathed out His Word, all scriptures breathed out by God, you see Him taking a very Jewish tax collector and, and burdening him with writing how he saw the gospel playing out, burdening him with writing the Jewish response to what Jesus said. And then you have this other dynamic where he takes Mark, who's nothing like Matthew, but yet he was affected by the gospel. And he burdened Mark to connect with Peter so much that he got Peter out of jail, took Peter from jail to Mark's mama's house so that they could hit it off and become buddies because they're both really high-strung individuals. And then he would travel together and he would hear, and you can see in the writing, the, those stories that took place. So when you say God breathed out scripture, he created this dynamic and these relationships and this history and this narrative where these guys sat around campfires and sat on boats probably and sat on, you know, and in caravans talking about what they had seen and heard. That's what it means that it's breathed out. So God has this very Jewish tax collector writing something from an, a unique standpoint, and then he has Matthew writing it from a unique standpoint because of his connection with, or he has Mark writing it with his connection with Peter, but yet they affirm one another because it's breathed out by God. And then you open up the gate a little more, and here we have Luke, like an investigative reporter who has this relationship somehow with this guy Theophilus who is going to encourage him to bring me the data that you have and write it down thoroughly. And in fact, don't just write Luke, but we're going to continue on and you write about what's going on as the church continues to grow in the book of Acts and he bridges the gap between the two. I, I got pretty fired up about it this afternoon. Looking at it, I'm like, man, that when you say all scripture is breathed out by God, we shouldn't just have a view of just sort of and it hits the page, and it's very clean and neat. All Scripture being breathed out by God means that God is actively involved in the lives of individuals who He has affected in unique ways and gifted in unique ways to write down what we have as this amazingly comprehensive reality 
of the gospel that's not exactly the same, but wildly affirming of one another. People from different backgrounds, people with different connections, people with different insights, but he brought them together. And so when we say it was breathed out by God, this little overview study gives us, a survey study gives us a unique insight into what that means and what the history was and what the context is. Luke was not Jewish, to be clear, and he appears to be a doctor. They, they referred to him as the physician. So he's a thinker. Um, who do we normally say wrote most of our Old Testament? Paul. I've said it lots of times in sermons and stuff. Um, I think Ben said it on Sunday. Throw him under the bus. He's not in here. It's all good. Um, reality is, if, if Luke wrote Luke, which is the longest of the Gospels, and Luke also wrote Acts, the majority of our New Testament was actually written by Luke. It's kind of interesting. Because I could tell you a lot about Paul, but I couldn't tell you much about Luke and his background before studying to teach this. So it just gives us a different perspective. It doesn't, it doesn't minimize the, the importance of Paul in the, in the gospel story. But it's, it's interesting that, that he wrote, um, the real, in reality, he wrote the larger majority of the New Testament. So here's our outline. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he went all the way back, and then he looked at firsthand accounts. I mean, he, it was very, very thorough, which we'll explore some in the next couple of weeks. So his outline is this. I'll, I'll say it slowly once. Um, in 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3, like most of the other, we see Jesus' birth, his boyhood, baptism, and genealogical descent. So 1 through 3 is Jesus. And the early days. Four through nine is Jesus' ministry of teaching and healing in Galilee. And so something that we have gained from all of these gospel accounts is that Jesus had those early days which were important, which were significantly you know, formative and, and um, fulfilling of prophecies. And then before he went to Jerusalem, he spent a lot of time in Galilee, be, getting a name for himself as a teacher and as a healer. So we see his ministry teaching and healing in Galilee. And then in 10 through 19, we see Jesus moving toward Jerusalem. And that's the time where we see lots of Jesus' teachings on what it means to be a disciple and about the future and how he would suffer. That's when Jesus begins those teachings. And then he gets into Jerusalem, and in 19 through 21, we see Christ's teaching in Jerusalem. So 10 through 19, was they're going towards Jerusalem, discipleship and suffering are the topic. And then 19 through 21, we see Jesus teaching in Jerusalem. In 22, we see Jesus' arrest. In 23, we see Jesus' trial, crucifixion, and burial. And in 24... We see reports of his resurrection, his post-resurrection appearances, and his ascension. So 24 is his resurrection, his post-resurrection appearances, and his ascension. Does anyone notice any differences about Luke's outline compared to the other two we've looked at so far? 
There's one distinct difference. Yeah, chronological count. At the very end is where the difference comes in. What would you say? The ascension, yeah. He talks way more about what happens after the ascension than anybody else. Those post-ascension appearances. And so pretty much what we see, the difference here, is that there's a fuller account of what happened after the resurrection. And that exists to bridge the storyline between Luke and Acts. That bridges the storyline between Luke and Acts. What happened after the resurrection, and then we'll go on to see what happens, obviously the beginning of Acts, which we're all uh, a little more familiar with. So a question for you guys. Does anyone have a previous view of Jesus that is not the same as your current view of Jesus? And if so, what happened? Do you have a previous view of Jesus that is not the same as your current view of Jesus? Go for it. It's better than no one talking, right? Um, I always I knew that he suffered and died mm-hmm. and all that, but I always thought he's God and he knows he's going yeah. to sit at the right hand and live in eternity. Yeah. I, I don't say what's the big deal, but you know, yeah. uh, until I fully embraced that, that he was 100% human. Yeah. That's a great example. Th- thinking about when you first hear about Jesus' sufferings, where it's like, well, he's God, and he knows he's going to go, he knows he's going to be seated at the right hand, so the suffering is not as bad as maybe what our suffering, you know? But then w- when you study about his humanness, that he was 100% man, 100% God, that puts a whole new understanding and, 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 and uh, insight into that. What else? Yeah. 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 Trinity is a great, great example of early on you may view as one is stronger than the other, or maybe you just kind of like one more than the other, and then um, realizing sort of the perichoresis, the dance, the the connectivity, the interconnectedness of of the Trinity is. Um, it shed some light on that, that it's not, Jesus didn't just kind of help out. He wasn't an afterthought at all, but he was part of the plan the whole time. He was there before creation was spoken into existence. What else? Views of Jesus that you used to have, that you don't have now, and what happened to change it? Pretty steady people, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. But it was just 
Yeah. Yeah, that's great. At first, seeing Jesus and seeing him as a great teacher um, who very nobly uh, suffered for us and liked by many, not not to know about his suffering until, until you get to that part. What else? Views of Jesus you had that you don't have now and why? There's a few that I thought would come up like real quickly that haven't. He was white. He was white. Yes. Yes. Yes, growing up, I pretty much just thought he was a prettier version of most of my relatives. What else? Soft spoken, yeah, yeah. 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 I will. Yeah. I'll never forget the Sunday school where Jesus turned over the temples, uh, the tables in the temple. And I just remember as a kid, I mean, I must have been eight years old, and we're reading, and all of a sudden Jesus is really hacked off and. And in a, the most holy way possible, I don't want to make that sound bad. And and he turns over the tables, and he's angry, and he's ca- he take a whim, casting, you know, getting people out of there and throwing their stuff around. And and then my uh, Mrs. Woods, my Sunday school teacher, who was amazing, she goes, "Now he did not sin. <laughs> he did not sin when he did this." Uh, and I just remember kind of being like, "I'm going to call your bluff on that." I don't, how can you get angry and turn over a bunch of tables and yell like a crazy person and not sin? I don't. Be, and the reason for that was up until that point, Jesus, to me, was mainly concerned with my happiness. It was mainly about what was in it for me. He came for everything's for you, for you, for you. Whatever makes you happy, 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 happy. But then who's this angry guy who's turning over the tables? What's he so angry about? I thought he just wanted everyone to be happy, and he came for kumbaya and peace. And it was. That was, a, that was a significant moment for me in that Sunday school going, how was he angry and he didn't sin? How? Like I, That was one of the first probably deep theological questions that I've ever had because it just was so starkly different than much of what I had learned or maybe just sort of assumed up until that point. So a lot of us, um, some people think Jesus is uh, in it for, for us more than him. Um, I remember learning about propitiation and not realizing. I remember when I learned about propitiation, that it's wrath absorbing. That, that Jesus died so that the wrath that was directed toward me because of my sin, the, which wages is death, that he would absorb the wrath of God instead of me. I was in my 20s the first time I heard propitiation explained, and I just that floored me. I knew he died on the cross for my sins, and I knew that if I was in him, I was safe, and I could, I'd be made holy, but the, the fact that the wrath of God landed fully on him was something that I hadn't, I hadn't really heard. And that changed my view, that changed my perspective of, of who he is and what he had done and then what he expects of me and then who I am now and what I don't need to try to do anymore, and what I should focus on now. 
Yeah. 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 Yes. That is propitiation. That is good. and and also that that has an effect on your view of God, right? So there's wrath from God. Okay. Now I'm starting to understand why he was turning over the tables. It, start, it starts making sense, but it takes time for all those things to come together. What do most of y'all? Um, well. The question we're going to ask of Luke, that Luke aims to answer, is what was Jesus really like? You know, that, that's what we're looking at. What was Jesus really like? If you saw Jesus, if you heard from Jesus, what was it like? We know that Paul talked about a ministry to the Gentiles. And there were some during that time where, when Paul talked about the ministry to the Gentiles, there were some Jews during that time that said, you know, Paul, I think you should keep that to yourself because I think it's clear that he's coming back for Israel. This has always been about Israel, it's currently about Israel, and it's always going to be about Israel. And Paul says, you don't understand. Israel was meant as something that happened up until the time of the nations. And so we're going to, this is a message for us, from Christ, for the Gentiles. And there were people who thought, Paul, I, I think you took that too far. And so Luke, the investigative reporter, is the guy who's going to come in and say, I know what Paul said about the ministry to the Gentiles. I want to know what Jesus said about the ministry to the Gentiles. So he's going to get real specific here. What do most of you remember from Sunday school about the pictures and illustrations of Jesus? Flowing robe, sash, usually a sash. Clean. White. Perfect hair. Almost airbrushed. Airbrushed Jesus. Yeah, he, he um, you know, the slender, soft, white Michael Bolton lookalike is kind of the thing we've always um, seen. And it's interesting because in the last few decades, if you actually, we don't have the illustrations up here, but it would appear that the illustrations have changed a little bit, like people who do these illustrations, and they've made him more manly. Um, Jesus has been recharacterized as a manly, burly carpenter. Like there's more, the more modern illustrations, you can see like the veins in his hands because he uses his hands and he's manly. So in most societies, in the history of planet Earth, men provide most of the public leadership. So a question we're going to look at is, did Jesus capitalize on that? Jesus was a man. Jesus' disciples and apostles were all men. All of the New Testament was written by men. So Dever asks, in short, Jesus clearly appreciated the importance of giving attention to the role, uh, the service, and the leadership of men. Right. So did, did, he, did he capitalize on that? That's something that we're going to look at. And if you're like crawling out of your skin, you know, just because of that little thing, just chill out. We'll get, we'll, we're going to get somewhere good. We're going to explore um, the people's focus versus Jesus's focus. We're going to explore what people expected versus what Jesus did. So turn to 139. It's a very male-dominated society. So let's look at what Jesus focused on and what was included in the story through Luke's very detailed investigations. 139. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste in the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt or leaped in her womb. 
And Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my, loom, in my womb leaped for joy. That's kind of hard to say. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then we hear Mary's song where Mary goes on and, and recounts what God has done. So, first, Luke recounts the celebration shared by two pregnant mothers, Mary and Elizabeth. And then he also marvels at Mary and Elizabeth's faith. And in fact, he even marvels at one of their faith above their husband's faith. That's the opening of the letter. Now look at 713. Seven thirteen. And when the Lord saw her, this was a widow whose son had died. So this is a widow. So her husband's already died. And now this widow's son has died. And so in that time, that would be a really bad thing for her because not, not only has her husband died, but now her son has died. And so it says, and when, he, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Luke's investigation appears to have turned up that Jesus cares about the tears of a mourning widow who's lost a son. And then he goes on to raise the son. Look at 737. In 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman in the city, who was a sinner, wouldn't you like that, like, Here's your intro, who was a sinner. Um, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. I mean, yeah, it's beautiful, but it's awkward, right? Like, just reality. What would you have done in that moment? Like, get off the floor. What are you doing, right? And so um, we know it's a beautiful story, and I, and I still feel that way reading it. Um, now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. He didn't even know what's going. A certain moneylender had two debtors, owed him 500 denarii. He goes on and he says, um, in verse 44, I don't want to get into the details there. He says, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Look at 8, 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he went on throughout the cities. 
proclaiming and bringing good news to the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with them, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susa, and many others who provided for them and their means. So not only is there signs of the... There's uh, details from the investigation regarding those who were healed and those who had faith. But here's those who were helping. They were traveling with them. They were an important part of Jesus' ministry. And they are noted. Look at 1038. 1038 says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? It sounds like my kids. When one of them is doing something good and taking care of something, inevitably it comes up that so-and-so's not helping. Hattie's not doing it. Hattie's watching the show. I'm putting on my clothes. You can imagine which one of my kids, Henry, said that. That's the same thing that's going on here. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And then look over at 13.10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues of the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, when he saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath. So the worker of the synagogue sees Jesus healing this woman and looks at the woman and says, You do that on the days that are set aside for that. He doesn't marvel at all at the fact that she's been healed of this thing that's plagued her for 18 years. He says, come back on those days. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to, wa- and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. We could go on. There are many more examples. All told, Luke mentions more women than any other gospel. That's pretty interesting, right? So Luke mentions more women than any other gospel. So the guy who went and did in-depth investigative reporting is a guy who came back with more women's names who were healed, who were faithful, who were an important part of the ministry, who were there um, when, when important lessons were taught, and they were, many of them were recalled by name in a very, very male-dominated society. Jesus also had a special awareness for children. Look at 841. Most of us are more familiar with, with this, maybe. In 841, it says, Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a, name, a man named Jairus, who was ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only one daughter, 
about 12 years old, and she was dying. And then look over at verse 51. It says, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she's not dead but sleeping. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. Look at 947. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, to those who were following him, to those who had left everything to follow him, he takes this child, puts him by his side, says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Look at 1021. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious Will. And then look at 1817. This is probably one of the more familiar, popular pictures that we have in our heads. We probably all had a painting of this somewhere in our Sunday school classes. In 1815, it says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me. And do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Different religions have different views when it comes to women and children. I read an article this morning that there's a particular religion uh, in a particular geographical area that because there's a Starbucks there, they'll take the Starbucks, but they're not going to serve women because of the religious beliefs, the cultural details that um, are shaped by it. That's 2016. We'll have a Starbucks, but the women aren't allowed to have any. So there are a lot of different perspectives that different religions have regarding women and children, but there are not other religions that show such concern for children or concern for the vulnerable in general, as is Christianity. Jesus called his followers to demonstrate concern for everyone, including the elderly, the weak, the vulnerable, the poor. I'm going to share this quote, but I'm going to share it carefully, and I'll explain why afterwards. In an interview, Christian ethicist Stanley Hauerwas speculated that within a hundred years, Christians may be known as those odd people who don't kill their children or their elderly. I'm going to say that again. He's an ethicist. Within a hundred years, Christians may be known as those odd people who don't kill their children or their elderly. There are parts of the world that 
view the elderly far more highly than we do here in America. There are also parts of the world that view children, they, they'll limit the number of children, they'll kill undesirable children, they'll forfeit undesirable children. Abortion, obviously, is a grotesque thing that we have stateside about uh, people who don't view a child actually even as a child. So what I want to be careful of, I don't want to unnecessarily villainize other religions as all other religions are baby killers and elderly killers. However, I do want to draw the distinction that the teaching of Jesus was intensely focused on the well-being of the vulnerable, including children and including women. And it was also in the face of a culture that didn't have the best view of women. The point here is that Jesus taught and exemplified love and benevolence toward women when too often those same women had been ignored or abused in the name of religion. That's part of what was going on here. They were ignored or abused in the name of religion. And Jesus' teachings were that, no, you take care of them. You take care of the women. You take care of the children. You take care of the elderly. You take care of that widow. You take care of the vulnerable. You take care of the poor. So Jesus was certainly manly. That was kind of the question we started off with. You know, this, has he, he's not the soft-spoken Michael Bolton. Is he manly? You know, it was a man-centered culture led by men. And he was certainly manly. And part of that masculinity was expressed in his concern for women and for those who were vulnerable in society. So that's where we're going to stop tonight. That yes, Jesus was manly, and you could see it because of his concern for those who were more vulnerable. Um, next week, we're going to consider his concern for the poor, his concern for the rich, and his concern for a number of others who might surprise you. So let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time tonight. Thank you for being a God who cares about the least of these. Thank you for being a God who in your breathed out word wants us to see the faith of the widow and the faith of the one giving um, their might, uh, the faith of those who just fell at Jesus' feet. Thank you for letting us see that in your gospel. Thank you for the reminder tonight um, of how we should be towards children. I pray that the reality of receiving children and thereby receiving you and, and welcoming children and being inheritors of the kingdom is in that. Um, I pray that that would affect our parenting, that we would not take lightly the call to be the main disciple makers in the lives of our children. Lord, I pray that uh, maybe it would affect the way we spend our evening with our kids. Maybe it would affect how we're not impatient with them. Maybe it would affect uh, the way we love our spouse. Uh, Lord, your ways are higher than our ways, and we're thankful for them. Also thankful that as part of your breathed out word, you charged Luke to do some investigating and figure out what Jesus really said. I'm thankful that that's part of the gospel, part of the good news, part of what we now know as gospel truth. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.